0: It is hard to believe that it's been over 10 years since I stood here last. Time is slippery stuff. I just ran into a young man that was in my youth group in Crystal River, Florida, as he came in with his wife and his baby boy. And that was a privilege. To see a young man and woman and his child coming tonight to worship, to surrender, to acknowledge a need in our hearts for something that we can't contrive. Pray with me, would you please? Father God, we come together as your church as family and friends, as believers and seekers on this night to honor and worship you and to remember the work of your son, our champion, our savior, Jesus. Father, by your spirit, the spirit of Christ, would you come please and meet us now through the teaching of your word, through the worship in song, through the silence, through coming to your table, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate in our hearts what is true of you and of us and be our good shepherd and guide us tonight into the ways We need to go. We thank you for an opportunity to focus on the week of Jesus' sufferings. And in particular, that Thursday night when Jesus gathered with his closest followers and friends to worship the Father by celebrating the Passover meal together. Come Holy Spirit and lead us into your truth. And help us to see Jesus anew, and follow him humbly, afresh. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. I want to read our text. It's John 12, verses 20 through 28. John 12, verses 20. Through 28. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, Glorify my name, your name. Interesting that I said that. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So I have an illustration, a visual that I want to share with you. It's a... a little dangerous, but Jim Johnson helped me make sure it would work. It involves this bowl, and it involves this ladder. Does, God word need, does God's word need props? Of course not. Maybe Chuck Berry does. So. Need a couple more things. This is for a few minutes from now. So we're all familiar with ladders. What do they do? They get us up higher. Right? And there are times when we need to get up higher. It's also a metaphor. In our culture and in our world, there's this thing that happens. And it's inside of all of us. And it's this desire to climb... And we think, and we strive, and we work, and we try to climb, to get higher, to get above the masses. And you think about it, who lives at the top of buildings? Who owned the homes on the very top of the mountain ridges? And what would you say? What would you say? Who lives up there? The successful live up there. And all of us, don't we want to be successful? We want to be successful at what we do, we want to be successful with the gifts and the abilities we have. So we strive and we climb. And the higher you get in this world, the more distant you get from those who are more needy. Isn't that true? And to some degree, we like that. It insulates us from the pain and the suffering of others. Sometimes it's hard to bear. There's an author, pastor, counselor. Uh, his name is Dr. David Tripp. Many of you are familiar with him. You've read some of his stuff. He wrote an article, and he posted it back in 2015, I believe, and it's called Glory Junkies. <laughs> Glory Junkies. Here's what he says. He says, whether you like to admit it or not, You're addicted to glory. He says it really is the struggle of struggles. It's what we were made for. It's what we crave most. And it's what we mess up in some way almost every day. What's the struggle? It's the struggle for glory. He goes on to explain how all of us share a deep propensity to pursue glory for ourselves He says we're addicted to the pursuit of glory, the climbing of the ladder of success. We're addicted to that pursuit. It's an adrenaline rush. It gives us meaning and purpose and value. And we're addicted to basking in our own glory. What is glory? The Bible term refers to a weightiness, a heaviness. The Shekinah glory is a heavy light. I like to think of Saul being knocked from his horse. By what? By heavy light. The glory of God. I like to think of Jesus when he was going to be arrested. And they said, who are you looking for? And they said, "You know, we're looking for this guy. And he says, I am. And a ray of this heavy glory knocks them all to the ground. That's the glory. That's the glory that humans, in the beginning, we were designed, we are designed to contain and reflect it, aren't we not? We're created in God's image uniquely, the only creatures in creation that are. And we're created to contain and reflect, not our glory, but God's glory. But something happened, didn't it? Something in the garden happened. Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God's word for the lies of the enemy And with that exchange came death, not immediate physical death, we all know that, but something died in Adam and Eve. And that thing that died affected their ability to contain and reflect the glory of God. And yet because we're all designed to contain and reflect God's glory, and yet sin cuts us off from God, we still Have a deep understanding, whether we can verbalize it or not, that we're created to contain and reflect glory. And if I can't contain and reflect God's glory, I will find residual glory in the things of this world. Because God made everything. And at one point he said, it is good. So there is good in many, many things. And if you think about it, the things that we have a tendency as a culture and as a people and as humans to become addicted to, they all start with something good. But as we seek to fill ourselves with the glory of that good, it doesn't satisfy, does it? And even as believers, we catch ourselves, do we not? We catch ourselves climbing. We catch ourselves working, striving, trying to get to the top so that we will be valuable, so that we will be seen as important, so that we will feel our purpose, which is to contain and reflect glory, But not ours. We're not designed for that. I have notes on these steps. Don't want you to think I'm anything that I'm not. (laughs) Tripp describes these four primary stages of seeking glory for ourselves. And the first one, maybe I won't look at them. The first one is education. None of these four are bad things. Remember I just told you that things we become enslaved to start out as really good things. And they're important things. First one's education. So what do we do? We seek knowledge. Knowledge. We seek it. We acquire it. We go to masters. We go to teachers. And we learn. And we learn. Why are we learning? We hope to learn enough. So that we can then go out and get the second step, which is experience. And if we get enough knowledge, we go, I'm intelligent. I'm I'm more intelligent than the average grapefruit. I'm intelligent. And so then we go and we start getting experience and experiences. And the more experience you get, the less intimidated you have to be around other people. The less embarrassed you have to be when somebody else knows something that you don't. So you get experience, and you gain, and you gain, and then you get to the point where you say, I am qualified. Not only am I intelligent, but I am qualified. And then you go and you apply your knowledge and your qualifications, and maybe, maybe you begin to experience some achievement and some accomplishments. And then you say, I am successful. But you know what? If there wasn't anybody to recognize your success, it wouldn't satisfy. Because what are we looking for? The fourth thing, we're looking for recognition. I want to be praised. (laughs) I want glory. Does that make sense? I know these are broad generalities. Give me an hour and a half. I trust you I can talk that long. Put me in a 25-minute time slot. It's a little harder. But I want to respect you. And the one who really is speaking to you tonight. And I believe it's not me. So there it is. Is anyone, do you see yourself in this illustration You know, there are a bunch of guys and gals and people that lived in a particular time. And you'll find it in Genesis 11. And they were Hamites. Hamites. Who are these Hamites in Genesis 11? Well, they decided, they said, come, let us build. What did they want to build? A city and a tower. Why a tower? And what's up with a tower? The tower goes up. And whoever can ascend the tower is not down low anymore. Right? Let us come. Let us build. And you know the story. You know what God says to himself, the community of the Godhead? He says, come let us go down. And God comes down. And what does he do? He creates languages. So the people that were working very well together with their gifts and abilities that were God-given and enabled by him. He gave them languages. They had to stop building. And have you ever thought about the juxtaposition of Genesis 11 and Genesis 12? It's kind of weird. One minute you're, you know, you're out here and they're building this big city and all that, and then you got Abraham. What is up with that? It's the juxtaposition of men seeking their own glory in Genesis 11 and the result, and a man in Genesis 12 seeking to honor God and the result. God had said, multiply and fill the earth. And what did the Hamites do in Genesis 11? Let's stick together because we can build a tower and be like God. And they did. And the tower was never finished. They never got to the top. And then the man in Genesis 12, from a moon-worshiping family, hears the word of God, hears a promise, believes it in his heart. It is credited to him as righteousness. And what does he do? He doesn't stay put. God calls him to go. Don't stay put in your father's household. Go. So what does he do? He goes. See the dichotomy there? It's the picture. This is Babel. And when we're climbing the ladder, clamoring, struggling, working, striving to fill what's empty inside of us through achievement and work, trying to get success, trying to get a leg up, trying to get above the masses, we get to the top, some of us, and what do we find? An empty basin. Not even real. It's plastic. And then when we get up here, what often happens? Oh, there's another ladder. Don't worry, I'm not climbing on that one. Because we get to the top and it's not the top. We're still not full. We might have been satisfied with aspects of the climb. You climb a trail and you get to the top and you get to see the overlook. Beautiful. Beautiful. Does it last? Does it stick? No. It can't satisfy. This isn't a new concept. Let me read you a couple quotes. This is Augustine, 350 A.D. He says of God, he says, You stir us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our hearts are unquiet until it rests in you. Your hearts will be always forever restless until you surrender it to your maker, to God. Blaise Pascal, the 1660s. Listen to this. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but there was once in a man a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So don't despair if you're feeling the sting of seeking success, seeking acclaim, seeking education, experience, success, recognition. If you're feeling the sting of falling off of this ladder numerous times and wondering, will you ever get to the top? That ache is not a bad thing. Tripp says this, we were not made to pursue or bask in our own glory. No, we were created to live for the glory of God. But because of sin, we forget or ignore the creator and choose instead to pursue the temporary and trivial glories of creation. This pursuit sidelines our purity and kidnaps our imagination. And in the end, it's what makes our lives messy and our relationships conflictual? Anybody experiencing conflictual relationships this week? So why the latter, Chuck? Is that all? It's not. As I was studying this text, something occurred to me, and I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, which is amazing that I'm here doing what I'm doing. But I want to show you something. I was an engineer once, but Jim Johnson... Blew me out of the water today. (laughs) Do you all see what I'm doing? Inverted the ladder, putting this much more commonplace bowl at the bottom. In this text is a two verse passage that I want to focus on, and I want you to see it. Can we pop it up there? Do we have it, verse 24 and 26? Listen, there are Greeks that are looking for Jesus. Why is that weird? Because it's Palestine, it's Jerusalem, it's a Jewish holiday. Who are these Greeks looking for Jesus? Foreigners have heard, they've, they've come, they're seeking the Messiah. Foreigners. They're not part of the chosen people. And what do they say? We want to see Jesus. And they go to Philip, and Philip's great, goes back to Andrew. He's done that before. He takes, he, the two of them go to Jesus, and this is Jesus' response. Jesus, some Greeks are looking for you. Oh, truly, truly. I mean, Jesus blows me away with his answers to people's questions. Because he's not really, he's not, he's not interested in answering their verbal questions. He's interested in answering their heart questions, which they're really asking. Right? He does that a lot. So he gives The crowd, his disciples, he gives them this answer to that request. Greeks want to see Jesus. They tell him, hey, these Greeks want to see you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, in this text, there are four difficult directives. Number one, if you're a believer, you are called to die. Number two, you are called to hate this life. Number three, you are called to follow Jesus. Number four, you are called to follow him by being a lowly servant to others. Four very difficult and challenging directives. Are they not? And yet I want to call your attention to the four reassurances that follow each of these directives. Look at them. If you die... God says your life will be fruitful. Fruitful. That's different from that on top of a ladder. Fruitful. For what? For this kingdom? For your kingdom? No, for Christ's kingdom. Fruitful. If you will die to yourself as a living sacrifice, moment by moment, day by day, setting your self-pursuit for glory aside recognizing it first, but then setting it down. Second, you're called to hate your life in this world. you know what that means? It means you hate the ladder, the other way around. You hate that system. There's so many things about that kind of system where it's all about your performance and it's all about whether you're better than somebody else. That system, I hate that system. You get to the top and what do you find? An empty bowl. That system crushes people. People crush other people trying to live up to that system. Hate that system. If you hate that system, God says, you will keep your life unto eternity. And then he says, follow me. And here's something I don't know, it was cool to me. It might not be cool to you. And if you could, just keep that slide up. I want to show you something about Passion Week. What we see in Passion Week is we see a God who lowers himself again and again and again and again and again. Because at the beginning of Passion Week, what do we have? We have a man who is God. Do you understand? No, you don't. There's no possible way any of us could understand how God had to lower himself to put himself into this. The second person of the Trinity who had infinite, wonderful, glorious fellowship with the Father, willingly elected at his Father's directive to come and take on flesh and become a man. And Scripture has the audacity to say that that was emptying himself. We think far too highly of ourselves than we should. So that's the first humility of God is God actually came down and became a man, a person in the person of Jesus. But then at the beginning of Passion Week, what do we see? We see a king humbling himself. How does he humble him? He's a king. He's not just a king. He's the king of kings. How does he humble himself? He comes into the city of kings on the colt of a donkey. Not on a war horse, not on a stallion, not on a Clydesdale, not on a Sherman tank. He comes in on a donkey. We see a king humbling himself. And then later in the week, we see a priestly host, the host of the party. And what does he do? And his followers that are in the room know who he is, know who he's claiming to be. He disrobes. What a humiliating thing. Disrobes. Puts a cloth around his waist. And where does he go? The God of the universe, who deserves to be standing on the highest ladder we could ever imagine. He gets down on the ground with a basin. And he does the lowest Servant's job washes his followers' feet. So God comes down as a man. A king comes down as he enters the city. A host comes down and becomes the servant. And then after this supper, he goes out and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. Guess where he goes now? God, God in man form, on his face in the dirt. On the ground, do you understand? Are you seeing this? God comes down and then he gets lower and then he gets lower and then he gets lower and he's not even there yet. Because then we know what happens and what's coming on Good Friday. We know what happens. After a night of travesty of justice, he goes to the cross and the perfect lamb dies. And after he dies, he's taken down from the cross and he's stuck where? Now he's not on the ground. Now he's In the ground, the creator of the cosmos, dead, buried. So when Jesus says, if you're going to serve me, you've got to follow me. I want you to see the power of that. I want you to see this in the full context of what happens in this week. Do you see it? Follow me. Follow me down. And what does he say in John 13? He says, he gives him a new commandment, right? What does he say? He said, I have given you an example to follow. As I have loved you by washing your feet, I want you to love one another. That is no simple external task. I could come over here and Gary, we could, we could get water. I could get down. I could wash your feet. I mean, we, 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 we do that. We've done that here. I've done that here in worship. It's glorious humbling vulnerable thing to take your shoes and socks off and allow someone else maybe someone in a position of authority over you wash your feet that's a challenging thing is that what Jesus is talking about here yes in part that's the external manifestation of this deeper understanding of a god who loves you so much that he came down and down and down and down and down and down and down so that you could have Life and life abundantly, which has very little to do with money and has very little to do with mountaintop homes and penthouse apartments. Because Jesus clearly says, Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Disciples, they struggle like we struggle, they struggled like we struggle. He said, the one who becomes the servant of all is the greatest. Of course, that's Jesus, right? He's the model. He's the example. So I wanted you to see this visual because we're about to come to the table of the Lord. It's, it's a human, you know, it's a literal thing here. But this is designed by Christ, by God himself, to not just be a visual tactile tactile experiential place to come but as you come to this table tonight I'm praying that the power of Christ's words to his followers the power of Christ's example the power of God coming down down, down, down why would he condescend so low? because every one of you in this room would never get it unless he had you're just not that bright You're not that experienced. You're not quite that successful. And the recognition all goes to him. So my challenge for you tonight, when you come to this table, you're coming in faith to the suffering servant And what does God's word say? If you humble yourself, what will God do in his timing and in his way? He will what? He will exalt you. Again, that's not about material wealth and abundance. I do not believe this is about you going, there's a seed that needs to die. And the way that seed dies is it has to get low and get planted. God's word is the seed. But isn't it interesting that when God died and rose again, who are his fruit? Jesus died so that the result would not be Jesus alone. It would be us. Do you see the picture? So in a minute, I'll take the ladder down so no one dies coming to the table. (laughs) I want you to, in your heart of hearts, connect with the Father who loves you so much that he sacrificed his one and only boy. And in fact, in an act of justice, poured out his wrath for your sin and my sin into and on his own son on that cross. And Jesus took that in. He drank the cup of wrath to the bottom and he died in your place and he was buried and Sunday's coming so come to this table come humbly ask God to strip your arrogance out of you ask him to reveal your pride to you Maybe you're trusting in your degrees and your diplomas. Maybe you're trusting in all your experiences. Maybe you're trusting in all your achievements and all your successes in this world. And maybe, in fact, many of you have received accolades and approval of other people. But when you come to this table, there's only one person's achievement that merits your place at the Lord's table and it's Christ's righteousness his work his perfect life lived his death on the cross to substitute for the death you and I deserve his resurrection from the dead and life everlasting you with me? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Luke 14. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 4. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Matthew 23. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxious thoughts on him because he cares for you. And lastly, Jesus' words, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Pray with me. Father, do business in our hearts right now. Convict. Expose. Dismantle. Make us vulnerable like only your spirit can. Come. Have your way with us. Have your way with our hearts. Have your way in us. Have your way through us. Break us if necessary. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill that place inside of us that that God-shaped hole, that hollow place. Fill it and keep filling it by your Spirit. Tonight, Father, enable us to come to this table hungry and thirsty for the bread of life and for living water. If you come to this table hungry and thirsty, you will be filled in God's manner and his timing. But come, by faith, in the finished work of Jesus. Amen.